This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lori Campbell, March 5, 2006, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. Chapter 59 The Old Piano. The Major's visit left old John Sedley in a great state of agitation and excitement. His daughter could not induce him to settle down to his customary occupations or amusements that night. He passed the evening fumbling amongst his boxes and desks, untying his papers with trembling hands, and sorting and arranging them against Joss's arrival. He had them in the greatest order, his tapes and his files, his receipts, and his letters with lawyers and correspondents. The documents relative to the wine project, which failed from a most unaccountable accident after commencing with the most splendid prospects. The coal project, which only a want of capital prevented from becoming the most successful scheme ever put before the public. The patent sawmills and sawdust consolidation product, etc., etc. All night, until a very late hour, he passed in the preparation of these documents, trembling about from one room to another, with a quivering candle and shaky hands. Here's the wine papers, here's the sawdust, here's the coals, here's my letters to Calcutta and Madras, and replies from Major Dobbin, C.B., and Mr. Joseph Sedley to the same. He shall find no irregularity about me, Emmy, the old gentleman said. Emmy smiled. I don't think Joss will care about seeing those papers, Papa, she said. You don't know anything about business, my dear, answered the sire, shaking his head with an important air. And it must be confessed that on this point Emmy was very ignorant, and that it is a pity some people are so knowing. All these two-penny documents arranged on a side table. Old Sedley covered them carefully over with a clean bandana handkerchief, one out of Major Dobbin's lot and enjoined the maid and landlady of the house in the most solemn way not to disturb those papers, which were arranged for the arrival of Mr. Joseph Sedley the next morning, Mr. Joseph Sedley of the Honourable East India Company's Bengal Civil Service. Amelia found him up very early the next morning, more eager, more hectic, and more shaky than ever. "'I didn't sleep much, Emmy, my dear,' he said. "'I was thinking of my poor Bessie.' I wish she was alive to ride in Joss's carriage once again. She kept her own, and became it very well. And his eyes filled with tears, which trickled down his furrowed old face. Amelia wiped them away, and smiling, kissed him, and tied the old man's neckcloth in a smart bow, and put his brooch into his best shirt frill, in which, in a Sunday suit of mourning, he sat from six o'clock in the morning, awaiting the arrival of his son. However, when the postman made his appearance, the little party was put out of suspense by the receipt of a letter from Joss to his sister, who announced that he felt a little fatigued after his voyage, and should not be able to move on that day, but that he would leave Southampton early the next morning, and be with his father and mother at evening. Amelia, as she read out the letter to her father, paused over the latter word. Her brother, it was clear, did not know what had happened in the family. Nor could he, for the fact is, 
that though the major rightly suspected that his travelling companion never would be got into motion in so short a space as twenty-four hours, and would find some excuse for delaying, yet Dobbin had not written to Joss to inform him of the calamity which had befallen the Sedley family, being occupied in talking with Amelia until long after post-hour. There are some splendid tailor-shops in the high street of Southampton, in the fine plate-glass windows of which hang gorgeous waistcoats of all sort, of silk and velvet and gold and crimson, and pictures of the latest new fashions, in which those wonderful gentlemen with quizzing glasses, and holding on to little boys with the exceeding large eyes and curly hair, ogle ladies in riding habits, prancing by the statue of Achilles at Apsley House. Joss, although provided with some of the most splendid vests that Calcutta could furnish, thought he could not go to town until he was supplied with one or two of these garments, and selected a crimson satin, embroidered with gold butterflies, and a black and red velvet tartan, with white stripes and a rolling collar, with which, and a rich blue satin stock and gold pin, consisting of a five-barred gate, with a horseman in pink enamel jumping over it. He thought he might make his entry into London with some dignity. For Joss's former shyness and blundering, blushing timidity have given way to a more candid and courageous self-assertion of his worth. "'I don't care about owning it,' Waterloo said Lee would say to his friends. "'I am a dressy man.' And though rather uneasy if the ladies looked at him at the government house balls, and though he blushed and turned away, alarmed under their glances, it was chiefly from a dread lest they should make love to him that he avoided them being adverse to marriage altogether. But there was no such swell in Calcutta as Waterloo Sedley, I have heard say, and he had the handsomest turnout, gave the best bachelor dinners, and had the finest plate in the whole place. To make these waistcoats for a man of his size and dignity took at least a day, part of which he employed in hiring a servant to wait upon him and his native, and instructing the agent who cleared his baggage, his boxes, his books, which he never read, his chest of mangoes, chutney, and curry powders, his shawls for presents to people whom he didn't know as yet, and the rest of his persicose apparatus. At length he drove leisurely to London on the third day, and in the new waistcoat, the native with teeth chattering teeth, shuddering in a shawl on the box by the side of the new European servant, Joss puffing his pipe at intervals within, and looking so majestic that the little boys cried hooray, and many people thought he must be a governor-general. He, I promise, did not decline the obsequious invitation of the landlords to alight and refresh himself in the neat country towns. Having partaken of a copious breakfast with fish and rice and hard eggs at Southampton, he had so far rallied at Winchester as to think a glass of sherry necessary. At Acton he stepped out of the carriage at his servant's request and imbibed some of the ale for which the place is famous. At Farnham he stopped to view the bishop's castle and to partake of a light dinner of studios, veal cutlets, and French beans with a bottle of claret. He was cold over Bagshoth Heath, where the native chattered more and more, and Joss Sahib took some brandy and water. In fact, when he drove into town, he was as full of wine, beer, meat, pickles, cherry brandy, and tobacco as the steward's cabin of a steam packet. It was evening when his carriage thundered up to the little door in Brompton, whither the affectionate fellow drove first and before hying to the apartments secured for him by Mr. Dobbin at the slaughters. 
All the faces in the street were in the windows. The little maid-servant flew to the wicket-gate. The madame's clap looked out from the casement of the ornamented kitchen. Emmy, in, great, in a great flutter, was in the passage among the hats and coats, and old Sedley in the parlour inside, shaking all over. Joss descended from the post-chaise, and down the creeping, swaying steps in awful state, supported by the new valet from Southampton and the shuddering native, whose brown face was now livid with cold and of the color of a turkey's gizzard. He created an immense sensation in the passage presently, where Mrs. Clapp and Miss Clapp, coming perhaps to listen at the parlor door, found Lao Jiatwab shaking upon the hall brent bench under the coats, moaning in a strange, piteous way, and showing his yellow eyeballs and teeth. For you see, we have adroitly shut the door upon the meeting between Joss and the old father, and the poor little gentle sister inside. The old man was very much affected, so of course was his daughter, nor was Joss without feeling. In that long absence of ten years the most selfish will think about home and early ties. Distance sanctifies both. Long brooding over those lost pleasures exaggerates their charm and sweetness. Joss was unaffectedly glad to see and shake the hand of his father, between whom and himself there had been a coolness, glad to see his little sister, whom he remembered so pretty and smiling, and pained at the alteration which time, grief, and misfortune had made in the shattered old man. Emmy had come out to the door in her black clothes and whispered to him of her mother's death, and not to speak of it to their father. There was no need for this caution, for the elder Sedley himself began immediately to speak of the event, and prattled about it and wept over it piteously. It shocked the Indian not a little, and made him think of himself less than the poor fellow was accustomed to do. The result of the interview must have been very satisfactory, for when Joss reascended his post-chaise and had driven away to his hotel, Emmy embraced her father tenderly, appealing to him with an air of triumph, and asking the old man whether she did not always say that her brother had a good heart. Indeed, Joseph Sedley, affected by the humble position in which he found his relations, and in the expansiveness and overflowing of heart occasioned by their first meeting, declared that they should never suffer want or discomfort any more, that he was at home for some time at any rate, during which his house and everything he had should be theirs, and Amelia would look very pretty at the head of his table, until she would accept one of her own. She shook her head sadly, and had, as usual, recourse to the waterworks. She knew what he meant. She and her young confidant, Miss Mary, had talked over the matter most fully, the very night of the Major's visit, beyond which time the impetuous Polly could not refrain from talking of the discovery which she had made, and describing the start and tremor of joy by which Major Dobbin betrayed himself when Mr. Binney passed with his bride, and the Major learned that he had no longer a rival to fear. "'Didn't you see how he shook all over when you asked if he was married, and said, "'Who told you those lies? "'Oh, ma'am,' Polly said, "'he never kept his eyes off of you, "'and I'm sure he's grown grey thinking of you.' "'But Amelia, looking up at her bed, "'over which hung the portraits of her husband and son, "'told her young protégé never, never to speak on that subject again, "'that Major Dobbin had been her husband's dearest friend, "'and her own and George's most kind and affectionate guardian.' that she loved him as a brother but that a woman who had been married to such an angel as that and she pointed to the wall could never think of any other union 
Poor Polly sighed. She thought what she should do if young Mr. Tompkins at the surgery, who always looked at her so at church, and who, by those mere aggressive glances, had put her timorous little heart into such a flutter that she was ready to surrender at once. What should she do if he were to die? She knew he was consumptive, his cheeks were so red, and he was uncommon thin in the waist. Not that Emmy, being made aware of the honest major's passion, rebuffed him in any way, or felt displeased with him. Such an attachment from so true and loyal a gentleman could make no woman angry. Desdemona was not angry with Cassio, though there is very little doubt she saw the lieutenant's partiality for her, and I, for my part, believe there were many more things that took place in that sad affair than the worthy Moorish officer ever knew of. Why, Miranda was even very kind to Caliban, and we may be pretty sure for the same reason. Not that she would encourage him in the least, the poor uncouth monster, of course not. No more would Emmy by any means encourage her admirer, the Major. She would give him that friendly regard, which so much excellence and fidelity merited. She would treat him with perfect cordiality and frankness until he made his proposals and then it would be time enough for her to speak and to put an end to hopes which could never be realized she slept therefore very soundly that evening after the conversation with miss polly and was more than ordinarily happy in spite of joss's delaying i'm glad he's not going to marry that miss o'dowd she thought colonel o'dowd never could have a sister fit for such an accomplished man as major william who was there amongst her little circle who would make him a good wife not Miss Binney, she was too old and ill-tempered. Miss Osborne, too old too. Little Polly was too young. Mrs. Osborne could not find anybody to suit the Major before she went to sleep. The same morning brought Major Dobbin a letter to the Slaughter's Coffee House from his friend at Southampton, begging dear Dobb to excuse Joss for being in a rage when awakened the day before. He had a confounded headache and was just in his first sleep and entreating Dobb to engage comfortable rooms at the slaughters for Mr. Sudley and his servants. The Major had become necessary to Joss during the voyage. He was attached to him, and hung upon him. The other passengers were away to London. Young Ricketts and little Chaffers went away on the coach that day, Ricketts on the box, taking the reins from Bodley. The doctor was off to his family at Portsea, Bragg, gone to town with his co-partners, and the first mate busy in the unloading of the ram chunder. Mr. Joe was very lonely at Southampton, and got the landlord of the George to take a glass of wine with him that day, at the very hour at which Major Dobbin was seated at the table of his father, Sir William, where his sister found out, for it was impossible for the Major to tell Fibs, that he had been to see Mrs. George Osborne. Joss was so comfortably situated in St. Martin's Lane, he could enjoy his hookah there with such perfect ease, and could swagger down to the theatres when minded so agreeably, that perhaps he would have remained altogether at the slaughters had not his friend the Major been at his elbow. That gentleman would not let the Bengalee rest until he had executed his promise of having a home for Amelia and his father. Joss was a soft fellow in anybody's hands, Dobbin most active in anybody's concerns but his own. The civilian was, therefore, an easy victim to the guileless arts of this good-natured diplomatist, and was ready to do, to purchase, hire, or relinquish whatever his friend thought fit. Lal Juab, 
of whom the boys about St. Martin's Lane used to make cruel fun whenever he showed his dusky countenance in the street, was sent back to Calcutta in the Lady Kicklebury East India, India Man, in which Sir William Dalton had a share, having previously taught Joss's European the art of preparing curries, pilaus, and pipes. It was a matter of great delight and occupation to Joss to superintend the building of a small chariot which he and the Major ordered in the neighbouring Long Acre. And a pair of handsome horses were jobbed, with which Joss drove about in state in the park, or to call upon his Indian friends. Amelia was not seldom by his side on these excursions, when also Major Dobbin would be seen in the back seat of the carriage. At other times old Sedley and his daughter took advantage of it, and Miss Clapp, who frequently accompanied her friend, had great pleasure in being recognized as she sat in the carriage, dressed in the famous yellow shawl, by the young gentleman at the surgery, whose face might commonly be seen over the window-blinds as she passed. Shortly after Joss's first appearance at Brompton, a dismal scene, indeed, took place at that humble cottage at which the Sedleys had passed the last ten years of their life. Joss's carriage, the temporary one, not the chariot under construction, arrived one day and carried off old Sedley and his daughter to return no more. The tears that were shed by the landlady and the landlady's daughter at that event were as genuine tears of sorrow as any that have ever been outpoured in the course of history. In their long acquaintanceship and intimacy they could not recall a harsh word that had been uttered by Amelia. She had been all sweetness and kindness, always thankful, always gentle, even when Mrs. Clapp lost her own temper and pressed for the rent. When the kind creature was going away for good and all, the landlady reproached herself bitterly for ever having used a rough expression to her. How she wept! as they struck, stuck up with wafers on the window, a paper notifying th that the little rooms so long occupied were to let. They never would have such lodgers again, and that was quite clear. After life proved the truth of this melancholy prophecy, and Mrs. Clapp revenged herself for the deterioration of mankind by levying the most savage contributions upon the tea-caddies and legs of mutton of her locataires, most of them scolded and grumbled. Some of them did not pay. None of them stayed. The landlady might well regret those old, old friends who had left her. As for Miss Mary, her sorrow at Emilia's departure was such as I shall not attempt to be depict. From childhood upwards she had been with her daily, and had attached herself so passionately to that dear, good lady, that when the grand barouche came to carry her off, into splendour, she fainted in the arms of her friend, who was indeed scarcely less affected than the good-natured girl. Amelia loved her like a daughter. During eleven years the girl had been her constant friend and associate. Separation was a very painful one indeed to her, but it was of course arranged that Mary was to come, and stay often at the grand new house whither Mrs. Osborne was going and where Mary was sure she would never be so happy as she had been in their humble cot, as Miss Clapp called it, in the language of the novels which she loved. Let us hope she was wrong in her judgment. Poor Emmy's days of happiness had been very few in that humble cot. A gloomy fate had oppressed her there. She never liked to come back to the house after she had left it, or to face the landlady who had tyrannized over her when ill-humoured and unpaid 
or, when pleased, had treated her with a coarse familiarity, scarcely less odious. Her civility and fulsome compliments, when Emmy was in prosperity, were not more to the lady's liking. She cast about notes of admiration all over the new house, extolling every article of furniture or ornament. She fingered Mrs. Osborne's dresses and calculated their price. Nothing could be too good for that sweet lady, she vowed and protested. But in the vulgar sycophant who had now paid court to her, Emmy was always remembered the coarse tyrant who had made her miserable many a time, to whom she had been forced to put up petitions for time, when the rent was overdue, who cried out at her extravagance if she brought, bought delicacies for her ailing mother or father, who had seen her humble and trampled upon her. Nobody ever heard of these griefs, which had been part of our poor little woman's lot in life. She kept them secret from her father, whose improvidence was the cause of much of her misery. She had to bear all the blame of his misdoings, and indeed was so utterly gentle and humble as to be made by nature for a victim. I hope she is not to suffer much more of that hard usage, and, as in all griefs, there is said to be some consolation. I may mention that poor Mary, when left at her friend's departure in a hysterical condition, was placed under the medical treatment of the young fellow from the surgery, under whose care she rallied after a short period. Emmy, when she went away from Brompton, endowed Mary with every article of furniture that house contained, only taking away her pictures, the two pictures over the bed, and her piano, that little piano which had now passed into a plaintive jingling old age, but which she loved for reasons of her own. She was a child when first she played on it, and her parents gave it her. It had been given to her again since, as the reader may remember, when her father's house was gone to ruin, and the instrument was recovered out of the wreck. Major Dobbin was exceedingly pleased when, as he was superintending the arrangements of Joss's new house, which the Major insisted should be very handsome and comfortable. The cart arrived from Brompton, bringing the trucks and bandboxes of the immigrants from that village, and with them the old piano. Amelia would have it up in her sitting-room, a neat little apartment on the second floor, adjoining her father's chamber, and where the old gentleman sat commonly of evenings. When the men appeared bearing this old music-box, and Amelia gave orders that it should be placed in the chamber aforesaid, Dobbin was quite elated. "'I'm glad you've kept it,' he said in a very sentimental manner. "'I was afraid you didn't care about it.' "'I value it more than anything I have in the world,' said Amelia. "'Do you, Amelia?' cried the Major. The fact was, as he had bought it himself— though he never said anything about it, it never entered into his head to suppose that Emmy should think anybody else was the purchaser. And, as a matter of course, he fancied that she knew the gift came from him. "'Do you, Amelia?' he said, and the question, the great question of all, was trembling on his lips, when Emmy replied, "'Can I do otherwise? Did not he give it to me?' "'I did not know,' said poor old Dobb, and his countenance fell." Emmy did not note the circumstances at the time, nor take immediate heed of the very dismal expression which honest Dobbin's countenance assumed, but she thought of it afterwards, and then it struck her, with inexpressible pain and mortification too, that it was William who was the giver of the piano, and not George, as she had fancied. 
It was not George's gift, the only one which she had received from her lover, as she thought. The thing she had cherished beyond all others, her dearest relic and prize. She had spoken to it about George, played his favorite airs upon it, sat for long evening hours, touching, to the best of her simple art, melancholy harmonies on the keys, and weeping over them in silence. It was not George's relic. It was valueless now. The next time that old Sedley asked her to play, she said it was shockingly out of tune, that she had a headache, that she couldn't play. Then, according to her custom, she rebuked herself for her pettishness and ingratitude, and determined to make a reparation to honest William for the slight she had not expressed to him, but had felt for his piano. A few days afterwards, as they were seated in the drawing-room, where Joss had fallen asleep with great comfort after dinner, Amelia said with rather a faltering voice to Major Dobbin, "'I have to beg your pardon for something.' "'About what?' said he. "'About, about that little square piano. I never thanked you for it when you gave it me, many, many years ago, before I was married. I thought someone else had given it. But thank you, William.' She held out her hand, but the poor little woman's heart was bleeding, and as for her eyes, of course, they were at their work. But William could hold no more. Amelia, Amelia, he said, I did buy it for you. I loved you then, as I do now. I must tell you. I think I loved you from the first minute that I saw you, when George brought me to your house, to show me the Amelia, whom he was engaged to. You were but a girl, in white, with large ringlets. You came down singing, do you remember? And we went to Vauxhall. Since then I have thought of but one woman in the world, and that was you. I think there is no hour in the day that has passed for twelve years that I haven't thought of you. I came to tell you this before I went to India, but you did not care, and I hadn't the heart to speak. You did not care whether I stayed or went. I was very ungrateful, Amelia said. No, only indifferent, Dobbin continued desperately. I have nothing to make a woman be otherwise. I know what you are feeling now. You're hurt in your heart at the discovery about the piano, and that it came from me and not from George. I forgot, or I should never have spoken of it so. It is for me to ask your pardon for being a fool for a moment, and thinking that years of constancy and devotion might have pleaded with you. It is you who are cruel now, Amelia said with some spirit. George is my husband here and in heaven. How could I love any other but him? I am his now as when you first saw me, dear William. It was he who told me how good and generous you were, and who taught me to love you as a brother. Have you not been everything to me and my boy, our dearest, truest, kindest friend and protector? Had you come a few months sooner, perhaps you might have spared me that, that dreadful parting. It nearly killed me, William. But you didn't come, and though I wished and prayed for you to come, and they took him, too, away from me. Isn't he a noble boy, William? Be his friend still, and mine. And here her voice broke, and she hid her face on his shoulder. The Major folded his arms around her, holding her to him as if she was a child, and kissed her head. I will not change, dear Amelia, he said. I ask for no more than your love. I think I would not have it otherwise. Only let me stay near you and see you often. Yes, often, Amelia said. And so William was at liberty to look and to long, as the poor boy at school who has no money may sigh after the contents of the tart woman's tray. 
End of chapter 59